Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals at Ryu Hotels and Resorts in Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America. And enjoy a selection of exclusive non-stop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, he's going for speed. I'm Jonathan Strickland. Oh, that was a good one. I'm Joe McCormick, and Lauren Vogelbaum, our other host, is not with us today, but she will be back with us soon. Yeah, so we thought we would take this opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, some stuff that helps us really get a grip on what's really going on out there. Yeah, um, so I saw the movie... Transformers 4. I'm so, so sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry too. I'm sorry I gave those people my money, and I'm I'm, I'm sorry for the world. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're all victims here. But one thing it got me thinking about, since a lot of the movie was taken up by things crashing into each other. Yeah. Really big things, really big robotic things with laser swords and stuff like that. As, as, you, as you do. Crashing into each sure. other. What happens when small things crash into each other? Well, then we can get a glimpse of how the universe works, Joe. What? Yeah, okay, so 
here's a question, and I really do mean this. It sounds like I'm being flippant, but here's a real question that we are looking for, uh, like answers for this question. Why do we have stuff? Like, why is there stuff? Why is there matter and energy? Sure. Why? Why is there stuff? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know if it's possible for there not to be stuff, but at least there is stuff. See, the reason why I ask is that if you look at our theories on the uh, the the earliest moments of the universe, keeping in mind that if we're we're following the Big Bang theory here, the further you get, the closer you get to the beginning, the less time matters. Like time it eventually is no longer a thing. And so you can't ask what happened before that because there's no time, right? So there's right, no before. Yeah. So time actually it goes back about thirteen point eight billion years and then you reach the boundary of time. Yes. So uh you can't ask what happened before that because that's a meaningless question in the context of of the universe, because without time there's no before. However, one of the things we we have uh, hypothesized, have theorized even, is that those early moments, there there was matter and antimatter, and these two just do not get along. No, they tend to completely annihilate one another, don't they? Absolutely. If matter comes into contact with antimatter, you get total annihilation. Uh, assuming you have equal parts, then you've got nothing left of that, of that uh, interaction, because they will completely annihilate one another. But we have matter. So that means something happened. For some reason, there was more matter than antimatter or something else happened to antimatter so that for some reason we didn't have everything annihilate. And that's why we're able to have this podcast. I mean, it's, it's not a direct line. <laughs> it's not a direct line, but we're one of the things, <laughs> you know, so this is one of those weird questions about the uh, about the universe. Another one would be like, uh, why does the universe exhibit the gravitational properties it does? Why does it expand at the rate it does? Yeah. Right. Because here's the thing about expansion. See, based upon our understanding of the universe, the universe should do uh, one of a couple things. It should either continuously expand if there's not enough matter for the gravitational forces to pull it all back in again, mm -hmm. or it should expand slow, stop, and then contract because the gravity is strong enough to pull everything back into the center. Uh, but one of the things we notice is that it is expanding, and through the data we've gotten from uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, it's actually expanding at a rate faster than what it was billions of years ago. So now that brings in a question of why does it do that thing? So now we've got all these questions. Yeah. How are we going to solve questions like this? Well, here's the problem, right? I mean, it these are questions that would most easily be answered if we could somehow travel back 13.8 billion years. Uh, I'm going to stop you right there and say, even if we could do that, I'm not sure it would be all that easy to answer these questions because how no. could you measure it? <laughs> no, but it would be... It would at least we would be there to witness what was happening at the very least, if not the, the moment we were dying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say that somehow we've managed to exist, uh, coexist in parallel to the budding universe uh, and we were somehow able to measure it. That would be our best chance. Of course, we can't do that. Right. We don't we don't have a time travel machine. We don't have any way of existing in parallel with our own universe. So the next best thing I would assume, would be to somehow create a, a micro 
And by micro, I mean super micro. I'm talking like atomic level reenactment of the uh, the conditions that were present moments after the Big Bang happened by smashing stuff together. So we see the fundamental uh, uh, elements, energies that were there before everything kind of coalesced into what it actually is now. So you're saying sort of by simulating or trying to, as best as we can, recreate the initial conditions of the universe, mm-hmm. we can get a better sense for why the universe looks the way it does now. Exactly. So by that, if we were able to do that and then measure it, observe it, draw conclusions, we could perhaps start to fill in some gaps in our knowledge. But recreating the initial conditions of the universe, that sounds crazy. How could you do that? Well, if you take, uh, it turns out if you take those small, small particles, you know, the small stuff we were talking about at the very top of the show, not transformers, but the small stuff, and then smash them together at at sufficient energy, we can make them kind of, um, well, it's decomposes the wrong word, but to, to convert into their high energy states that they were uh, that they would have been right at moments after the Big Bang, before they formed into the particles that we know today. And we call these particle colliders, right? These are the machines we use to create these collisions, uh, and they are incredible things. Right. So our topic today is particle colliders. We didn't and... mean to bury the lead there. But <laughs> <laughs> we did behind Transformers and the beginning of the universe. Yeah, and some Big Bang stuff. Very yeah. closely related things. Okay, so what is a particle collider and how is it different or is it different from a particle accelerator? Well, a particle accelerator is something that you use in order to get a particle up to a certain energy level, a certain speed. Yeah. And it's uh, I mean, those are components in colliders, but they are also used for uh, other things. Yeah. In one sense, there sort of is no difference. People often use these terms interchangeably, and it's sort of correct to do that because one term is basically a more specific term than the other. Right. A collider is a specific way of using a particle accelerator, or it's sort of a type of particle accelerator. And they generally refer to colliding two separate beams of subatomic particles or ions. Uh, It doesn't have to be subatomic. It can be atomic particles. But, uh, you know, uh, an accelerator doesn't necessarily have to collide it with another beam of pro- of, of uh, particles. It could actually be a fixed target. Right. So uh, you could just accelerate stuff at a fixed target to find out what happens. Or at something where that beam of particles might be useful in a piece of technology, say the back of a TV screen or say even what? at a tumor. So in a technical sense, a particle accelerator is a device that uses electromagnetic fields to grab particles, increase their speed, and focus them into directed beams. Okay, so for one thing, uh, one thing that we have to say right away is that if we're using electromagnetic forces, then clearly whatever particles we are manipulating need to have some form of net charge to them, whether that's positive or negative. Right, so you'll see them grabbing, like, electrons. That you have or, a negative charge. Yeah, or grabbing protons. Which have a positive charge. Or grabbing ions. Which are charged, you know, those One are atoms. One way or another, yeah. yeah. atoms that either have uh, more electrons than their n- natural state or fewer electrons, so that they have a net charge one way or the other. Yeah, so one commonly... Uh, give an example of a sort of small-scale application of the same principle behind a particle accelerator is a cathode ray tube. That's what the CRT stands for, 
when you talk about a CRT monitor or a CRT TV. Yeah. The, this, the old way of creating TV screens. Yeah, those, those larger, bulkier televisions that some of our listeners may never have seen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, actually, uh, Craig Freudenrich uses this example in his How Stuff Works article about atom smashers, which is a term we'll come back to in a minute. So in a cathode ray tube, like on an old TV, you use the electrical difference between a cathode, which is negatively charged, and an anode, which is positively charged, to pull a beam of electrons through an evacuated container. So that's like a glass tube where you've sucked all the air out of it, and it's right. just a vacuum inside. And remember, because uh, like charges repel one another and opposite charges attract, that's why we're getting this ability to move these particles where we want them to. Right, so the positive uh, anode wants to pull the electrons from the cathode. Right. And they get pulled off in a beam and then shoot through that anode toward the TV screen. Of course, you can't just shoot electrons at a TV screen. You've got to aim them somehow. Yep. Right? So that's where electromagnetic coils come in. They can focus the beams of electrons and make them go where they need to go. And these days, particle accelerators can be used for all kinds of stuff. We don't have so much CRT technology anymore these days. But they can be used for things like treating cancer by aiming particle beams at tumors. That's particle therapy. Interesting. Um, But uh, most of the time, of course, when people are talking about particle accelerators, they're talking about experimental mechanisms like the colliders. Right. So a collider is a particular kind of particle accelerator that steers beams of accelerated particles into something, either into a barrier or into an object or into each other to smash them and study what happens when this tiny moment of catastrophe takes place, when when the tiny particles... Go kablooey. Yeah, that's the technical term. Uh, and this is why we wanted to also bring up the whole Atom Smasher thing, because that is a, a, another kind of nickname for these sort of uh, devices, right? Yeah, not to get pedantic. I mean, that's basically, it's fine to say Atom Smasher, but that, that's not technically so much what these are anymore, because they're usually not going to be grabbing whole atoms. Yeah, maybe ions. There's some uh, heavy ion accelerators out there. Uh, so that would be atomic. Right. But but in large part, we're talking about subatomic particles. We're talking, uh, for example, one of the ones we'll be covering a lot in this episode is the Large Hadron Collider, which, among other things, does proton collisions. So you have two different beams of protons, which are subatomic particles, right? That's yeah. part of what makes up an atom. Uh, but the you can also positively charged part. You, yep. Yes. And you can also have things like electron positron colliders. Now, Electrons are the negatively charged particles. Positrons are their antimatter counterpart, essentially. Spooky. Yeah. So, in other words, you're using uh, you're using these things to to move very, very, very tiny particles around. And when I'm saying tiny, you might not really get a grip on exactly how small we're talking about. Remember, the nanoscale. A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. The nanoscale is smaller, like if you're looking at something that's one or two nanometers long, you're not looking at it optically because you can't. There's no way for you to be able to look at that optically. Light itself is not going to allow you to do that because the wavelengths are too long. Mm -hmm. But uh, the atomic scale is an order of magnitude smaller than that. So that's even smaller than a nanometer, right? That you, You essentially can have... This is rough because it depends upon the atom, but you could have 10 atoms side by side to make up one nanometer. So they're one tenth that size. So they're even smaller. And then we're talking subatomic particles that are even smaller than a full atom. So at this point, you're talking about things that are unimaginably small. 
and you're talking about directing them as precisely as you possibly can so that they collide with something like another beam of particles. If you if you can imagine it, that means that you have to focus these beams into insanely tiny, tight packages or else you would never get a, a collision. It would be like if Joe and I were both in uh, an enormous stadium and blindfolded and set on either end running toward each other and the possibility of us actually colliding. That would I'd, still be far more likely. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'd say that's actually really generous. It's probably more like if I stood on the moon yes. and you stood on the earth and we each threw a pencil at each other. And we somehow were able to escape the various gravitational pulls. Right, yeah, yeah, putting that aside. Saying gravity is negligible in this case. Yes. And the idea that we, those two pencils would meet point to point. Yeah. That would be still a level of precision greater than what is required or, or lesser than what is required, rather, than these beams of, of subatomic particles meeting. It is an incredible achievement. Yeah. So how do these generally work? Well, there, there's two main setups you'd see. One is sort of the ring shape. Yeah, the cyclotron. The cyclo. Yeah. So that's where they would get these particles. Uh, like we said, they control them with electromagnetic forces within some kind of tube and accelerate them yep. around a ring yep. going faster and faster with each turn and increasing, well, faster and faster to a certain point. And then once they get up to 99 point something percent of the speed of light, you're just sort of like increasing their relativistic mass. Yes. And until they finally get to that point where these two, uh, well, one one set would be going clockwise, one would be going counterclockwise. Or Wittershins, as yeah, they put in the notes. Until they finally... Collide. Yes, at specific points around the cyclotron. This would be the points where you have some form of scientific uh, instruments that are going to be measuring those collisions in yeah. various ways. Yeah, you've got an instrument sitting where the streams cross and waiting. Yes. Uh, and then the other way of doing it instead of a ring would be a linear accelerator, right? That's yeah. where you just kind of have one big long tube and a gun on each side and you aim the bullets at each other. Yep. Yep, that's that's pretty much it. And so uh, the linear one is actually the the uh, the earliest type of particle accelerator. The the cyclotrons came a little later. Yeah, but the linear type may actually figure into the future of particle accelerators, though the cyclotron is what's big today. Yes, <laughs> literally big today. <laughs> so okay, yeah, let's talk about the history. Where did these things come from? Okay, well if you if you're going to be really technical, you have to go all the way back to 1910. Because that's when scientists were first starting to notice that uh, when they were beaming particles at like a sheet of gold, some of them were bouncing back, which then began to give people a, a, a thought of, hmm, these things have this kind of mass and they're behaving in this way. Maybe there's a way of smashing these together and kind of seeing what makes them tick. Now, it wouldn't be until the 1930s that they started to, the scientists started to build particle accelerators mm -hmm. uh, that would actually uh, end up colliding these particles with something else. And um, at that time, they were pretty limited. They were usually the, they were the linear type originally, and uh, they could get it up to a few hundred thousand electron volts. So that might not mean anything to you. An electron volt is a unit <laughs> of energy. It's uh, equivalent to about 1.6 times 10 to the negative 19 joules, or it's also known as the energy gained or lost by the charge of a single electron moved across an electric potential difference of one volt. Well, that don't mean a lot to me. Okay, but... <laughs> well, at any rate, it's 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 a very specific, very tiny amount of energy. Yeah. So the, the original 
experiments were a few hundred thousand electron volts. Then they kind of hit an energy barrier. Uh, they were specifically using direct voltage to accelerate ions, so those charged atoms, mm-hmm. uh, to go and, and get into these collisions. But at that low energy, you're not getting the collision. The collisions are not necessarily as spectacular as what you would need to really get an idea of what was going on uh, in the earliest moments of the universe. So eventually uh, this this approach got up to about a million electron volts. But after that, uh, the the problem is that uh, you get voltage breakdown. So you could not continue to just try and throw more energy at the yeah, problem. They, they couldn't scale it up. Yeah. So in the 1940s, scientists turned to oscillating radio frequency electric fields to resonate with particles through accelerating gaps. And that's a fancy way of saying they tried something else that worked better. <laughs> it really is. I mean, I, we to go into a lot of detail would require, one, it would require more time. And two, frankly, it would require a lot more expertise than what I have in this field. Uh, I've written about particle accelerators in the past, and I understand from a very kind of basic approach how they work. When you get into fine details, uh, my knowledge breaks down pretty rapidly, <laughs> faster than a subatomic particle, as it turns out. So uh, these accelerators were still linear, but then eventually scientists began to experiment with cyclotron designs, these big circular designs. Right. And that the purpose was to try and continuously accelerate particles because, you know, you're limited by the length of whatever linear accelerator you have. And that's it. Right. You can't you can't loop it back and start over. You've got it's essentially a straight path to whatever, whether that's two guns facing each other or a gun facing a target. But with a circle, you could, in theory, just keep moving it around the circle and getting it faster and faster and faster until you're ready to direct it toward that collision. Right. Right. So that's why they went with the the circular approach. At this point, they got up to about 25 million electron volts. And by the 1950s, they could design cyclotrons that could push back that energy barrier to 2 billion electron volts. And before the end of the 1950s, they got up to 400 billion electron volts. So that energy barrier just (laughs) kept going up and up and up. Yeah. Um, And so now these days we're talking about electron volts in the trillions. So we should probably just take a second to mention why is it so important to get the energy so high to increase their speed and and increase their effective mass? It's really so that those collisions actually result in the the primal kind of uh, state that the universe was in in those earliest moments. Without it, you don't have enough energy to revert back to that. Yeah, to get the kind of results you want, you want the highest possible energy collision. Yeah. Uh, Although we should say at this point, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, again, one of the most famous colliders right now, um, is uh, has been operating, uh, hasn't been operating for the last several months, but (laughs) in its first round, it was operating at like a third of its uh, capability. Those earliest experiments weren't really performed at anywhere near its highest capacity, although we don't th- expect it ever will run at that now. But it's definitely the second round is going to be much higher energy. So they're expecting to find some really cool stuff the well, second round through. Well, let's get into the Large Hadron Collider, except first, I think we should mention a couple of the other notable colliders from recent years. Sure. So, yeah, you're talking about like Brookhaven's Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider. Yeah. ARHIC. 
That was commissioned back in 2000. It's designed to collide heavy ions, but it's capable of going all the way down to protons in size. There is uh, Fermilab's Tevatron? Tevatron? Uh, Tevatron is what I've always said, but it yeah. could be Tevatron. Well, yeah, uh, so that's one of those uh, proton-antiproton colliders, so that's matter and antimatter. Yeah, and uh, it can work as both a proton-antiproton beam collider or yeah. uh, as a fixed target collider as well. Okay. Um, so it, it can do a couple of uh, different things. And is it, I'm to understand, I believe it's number two, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, up until the Large Hadron Collider, it had become, it was the, the highest energy collider in the world with 1.8 trillion electron volts, which is pretty significant. But then you've got the Large Hadron Collider that's at CERN, uh, which, uh, you know, we, we recently got a chance to see the movie Particle Fever, which was all about the development of the Large Hadron Collider, its early days of being switched on, the relationship between theoretical physicists, who are the ones who are coming up with the ideas of how the universe must work based upon our understanding, mm-hmm. and the experimental physicists who put those ideas to the test and see if they actually hold water. So, yeah, the Large Hadron Collider might be the greatest instance of an experimental physics in the history of humanity. Yeah. Depends on how you define greatest, I guess. But it's definitely the largest machine ever built by humans, as far as we know, as long as we, we don't have that, like, you know, the Nazis built a Death Star inside of the Earth kind of theory. Or but, on the other side of the moon, right. as Iron Sky has taught us. Oh, really? It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. Well, I will you've already, not. You've already had to endure Transformers 4. Don't put yourself <laughs> to more more pain. Uh, no, there's no serious reason to question it. It is the largest machine ever built by human beings. So the Large Hadron Collider, it's basically just picture this. It is a giant underground ring-shaped tunnel that's 27 kilometers in circumference. And that is 16.7 miles. They usually just call it 17 miles. Yep. Um, if you got in a golf cart with an average top speed of about 20 miles per hour and you drove around this thing, not saying there's necessarily room for you to do that, it would take you over 50 minutes to make a complete circuit inside this tunnel. And this tunnel, by the way, is about 330 feet below the surface of the ground. Yeah, well, the the, the depth, I think, is variable. Yes, yes it, does, generally, it does vary. It's hundreds of feet, yes. hundreds of feet down uh, under the earth at the border between Switzerland and France, pretty close to Geneva. Yep. So why was this built? Well, it was built for the very reasons we've been talking about, to create these high-energy particle collisions to see what happens and and to kind of get an idea of what was going on at the very, very earliest moments of... And we're talking like fractions of a second when the universe came into existence. Right. So we've mentioned it sort of in general what a particle accelerator does, but what does the Large Hadron Collider do? Okay, first you've got some feeders that speed up particles first, right, right, before they... You start with hi- with hydrogen ions, the protons, just yeah. protons. So, and with those, you've got these. Uh, think of them as kind of a uh, like uh, like these are the the little feeder tubes that get out, get those streams of protons up to a certain speed before introducing them into the collider itself. Well, oh yeah, that's true. Before they enter the main ring, they go through several stages of pre-acceleration. Yep. So there are smaller rings they go into first. Yes, and then it goes into the larger ring where it continues to accelerate using supercooled magnets. We're talking like we're we're talking about this whole system uh, the magnet system is cooled down to temperatures that are just above absolute zero. But why do they cool them down like that, Jonathan? Well, it's mainly to 
completely cut out all electrical resistance. So you make it as efficient as possible. So these are superconducting magnets. Yeah. They were talking about not, you know, when you, when you have eliminated resistance, which is generally a problem with any kind of electrical system, right? Mm-hmm. You have some resistance to electron flow and therefore you lose some of that energy as heat. Uh, by supercooling it, you get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you make the superconducting material where that's no longer a, a, a problem. And you can make these magnets incredibly efficient that way. Uh, efficient only after you have used liquid helium to cool them down to the, uh, just a, a little bit over absolute zero. It's actually technically colder than empty space. Because even empty space still has a bit of a temperature. It's because remember, absolute wow. zero is when you get to a point where there's no molecular movement. Sorry, I'm just trying to think, what is the temperature of empty space? That would seem to depend on whether you're in the shade or in the line of fire <laughs> from the sun, right? Well, you know, it's, it, it, sure, it's, it's five Kelvin, but it feels like nine Kelvin. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, but it, no, it really is true. It's really cooling things down. It's, it's reducing molecular movement to a level below that which you would find in your, you know, any given empty space sector. Right. So, so, so these, Magnets become extremely powerful and they're acting upon these tiny, tiny particles. So it's they're they're pretty compelling. Yes. <laughs> uh, and they have the ability to get these things going extremely fast. Yeah. All you know, practically just just a well, it's hard to say practical. Right. Yeah. But at ninety nine point nine 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 seven percent, the speed of light, it's an incredible speed. And you've got uh, and, and by the way, that ninety nine point nine 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 seven, that was just me kind of. Saying for an it's example, it's more than ninety nine percent of the speed of light. Yeah, they so go extremely fast. You have one beam, like we said, going clockwise. One beam going counterclockwise, and you do this until they've reached the proper speeds and relativistic mass. Yeah, and then those beams get focused by specific magnets to collide at very particular points along the circumference of the LHC. Now, at each of these points, as we mentioned before, where the collision is is ready to happen. There are instruments waiting. Yeah, we're, we're saying instruments. That sounds like there's like a little sensor or something. No, <laughs> no we're talking like multi-story scientific facilities. We're talking like yeah. like some of them were five stories or seven stories tall, 70 feet tall. This is an enormous uh, facility that has tons of microelectronics in it, literally tons of microelectronics in it, all in an effort to capture snapshots of what is going on in that those fractions of a second when these collisions happen, because this stuff is, you know, blink and it's over blink and, and 14 billion of them are over. I mean, it's incredibly fast. You know, we're talking about uh, uh, so fast that again, to try and imagine an interval of time that short is impossible, at least for me. Maybe other people are capable of doing it, but uh, it it's, is uh, it's how fast I wanted to run out of the theater. A Transformers, Transformers <laughs> yeah, um, instantaneous is pretty much it, right? Right. Okay, so I do want to get into what they discover with these experiments, but one more thing I think we should uh, talk about for a second is how they built this thing. I mean, uh, what a, a seventeen-mile tunnel. Well, what is wrong with them? For one thing, for one thing, they didn't have to to dig the tunnel for the LHC, right? That's true. Yeah, the tunnel already existed, so that was smart of them to use this. It was already uh, from a previous experiment called the LEP, the Large Electron Positron Collider, which was uh, decommissioned in the late '80s to make way for the LHC. Mm-hmm. So the LHC has been in development for for 
years and years and years. In fact, it was one of those things where uh, it became huge news as it got closer and closer to coming online. But the funny thing is, is it had been around in some form or another, as, at least in the building process, for a decade yeah. or more, actually, right. more than a decade, uh, almost two decades. So it was pretty incredible that, uh, to me, when I was learning more about it, I'm like, why haven't we heard about a lot about this before? And part of that is just uh, that at the time when the LHC was being built, there were other possible colliders that were in consideration to be built in other parts of the world, including in the United States, they ended up not panning out. And no, we don't need no science. Now, we could do a States. full episode about that story, but we are going to focus on the optimistic, not the sad. So <laughs> at any rate, the large electron-positron collider was the largest electron-positron positron collider ever built. It had 5,176 magnets and 128 accelerating cavities, and it did what you would think it would do. It collides electrons, or it did collide electrons with positrons. And uh, they would, again, try to, uh, they, when they meet, they annihilate one another and produce high energies, which almost instantly rematerializes streams of particles. But again, that was one of those things of Let's see what happens in these high-energy particle collisions and learn more about the nature of the universe itself. Yeah, so this is a great place to build the LHC, uh, especially because being so deep underground, this tunnel provides good protection, and it's two-way protection, right? Yeah. It helps protect the surface from radiation from the experiments, but it also, maybe even more than that, helps protect the experiments from radiation from the outside. Exactly. Yeah, you want to have that shielding material there to try and keep the experiment as pure as possible so that you don't have to worry about some sort of outside factor interfering with it. Now, that doesn't mean that an outside factor couldn't interfere with it. Uh, a bird with a baguette might. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, you may have heard back when the LHC was uh, was getting toward doing its first actual experiment with... with uh, uh, an actual collision, things were delayed when they... Yeah, a, what was it actually? Had? There was some kind of coolant failure or something? Well, first that, there was a coolant failure. First yeah. there was the a liquid helium leak, which uh -huh. was happening on the... Uh, shortly after they first tested the beams, which that, in that case, they weren't even trying to collide anything. They were just making sure that they could move a beam through clockwise and counterclockwise before ever planning out a collision. And then the... Uh, not too long after that, there was a helium leak, which set everything back by several months. Uh, once they got that fixed, the next problem was that <laughs> there was a <laughs> there was some sort of of malfunction, sometimes attributed to particles that got into a ventilation duct that may have been caused by a bird carrying something and dropping it in there. So it <laughs> ends up always being described as a bird carrying a baguette. And dropping the food where it landed on this, in an incredible coincidence, landed down this ventilation shaft and mucked up some uh, important electronics, which thus caused uh, some some short circuiting and some other issues. I read a rather cryptic statement from them saying that they, they like wanted to clarify: we don't know a bird dropped a baguette on uh, one yes. of our one of our uh, facilities components. We just what did they say? It was something like. There were breadcrumbs and feathers found at the scene. <laughs> yeah. It could have been that someone was plucking a bird and eating a baguette and then sabotaged it. Who knows? Yeah. But that also led uh, a lot of 
I don't know, a lot of it was tongue in cheek, but a lot of people saying that perhaps the the Large Hadron Collider was sabotaging itself or that someone from the future had come back to sabotage the LHC to prevent it from destroying the world. Oh, yeah. We should talk about it destroying the world, which it totally is going to do. Yeah, no, it's it's ho- not. it totally has not happened. Have you noticed? Yeah. Like, there, do remember you know, all those people who thought that was going to happen? Do you remember like, the web? Have you seen the website? I think it's has the LHC destroyed the world dot com, something like that. No, just <laughs> it just says no, <laughs> which nice. is great. But, uh, okay, so anyway, the LHC took the place of the LEP. It was, uh, of course, has its own magnets, 1,232 dipole magnets that are 15 meters in length. Those guide the beams of protons. And then you have the 392 quadrupole magnets, which are between 5 and 7 meters long, that focus those beams. They get Mm -hmm. them into those very precise uh, parameters for the collisions to happen. Okay, so we've got it all set up. Yeah. We've got protons going one way. We've got protons going another way. They're ready to collide. The instruments are waiting. What do we discover? So, uh, well, I mean, how about the particle that helps tie together the standard model of physics? That sounds pretty good. That's pretty good. It's uh, You might have heard of it. Higgs boson. The Higgs boson. Yeah. That's right. So at the LHC, they did not come up with the idea of the Higgs boson. This is a this has been a hypothetical particle that we've known about for a long time. We'd just never seen it. Yeah, the, again, this is where we get the theoretical physicists, right? Right. The theoretical physicists are the ones who look at the universe as we understand it. And then they start looking at gaps in our understanding and they start trying to theorize what could possibly fill those gaps. Mm-hmm. The Higgs boson was this hypothetical particle that it, that it kind of filled in this gap of, of information we had. So the standard model is really complicated. We're not going to go into everything about it. but And we could not if we tried. No, if we tried, we would just completely muck it up. <laughs> uh, so just complete honesty there. But the Higgs boson sort of like the rug in the Big Lebowski tied the whole room together. It's true. It's um, it's often explained as the particle that gives other particles their mass. It doesn't exactly give them their mass, but it helps us understand the mechanism of mass. Yeah, uh, it was one of those things where in order to understand why matter has mass, we had to have this hypothetical particle to uh, to help with our understanding. Right. And if it didn't exist, if it turned out that we did experiments and found no evidence of this particle, it would mean that something about our fundamental understanding of the universe is wrong. Yeah, it would mean that the thing we call the standard model needs a major revamp. There's something completely wrong with it. And in fact, I know that there were <laughs> there were theoretical physicists who were really kind of hoping for that because oh, it, yeah. would, it would mean that there'd be a whole new world to have to understand in the world of, of theoretical physics. Right. It would mean that the the assumptions we had made were faulty and therefore we had to re we would have to look at them again, reassess them and figure out new assumptions to make. However, they started. Yeah, they started smashing protons together, looking for a Higgs boson. Did they find one? Yep. Yeah. In fact, at first it was one of those very, uh, very appropriate scientific announcements. Yeah. First of all, they may have been found. Yeah. And not only that, but the experiments had happened uh, well before the announcement, right? We're talking months and months and months and months and months had passed 
before there was ever an announcement of what had been found. Like you'll, you'll hear, oh my gosh, in 2012, the Higgs boson was discovered. And then you read, wait a minute, this experiment was done a full year earlier. No, it <laughs> took them that long to understand the data, to right. make sure that, that they knew what they were looking at, to confirm it with other people who knew what they were talking about. Right, to, to establish at what level of certainty could they say that this was the Higgs boson. Yeah. And uh, and, and they were very cautious about it, uh, appropriately so, I would say. But at this point, we feel like certain it was the Higgs boson. Yeah. And that's what they found. And in fact, it showed that this standard model was, uh, as we understood it, correct. Like it, it filled in that gap. Yeah. Um, so how exactly does it fill in the gap? Again, that's not something we're really qualified to discuss, but at sort of the top level, the question is, how can a single particle affect everything from how we understand how these tiny thing, how these tiny particles relate to each other to cosmology, like our entire idea of how the universe is structured? Right. Well, uh, it also has to do with something called the Higgs field, yeah. which occupies the whole universe. So we're, we're good there. Thank goodness. Right. Um, and that the Higgs boson <laughs> is the, the thing about mass, which uh, when a particle is passed through the Higgs field, the Higgs boson is what determines whether or not that particle has mass or does not have mass. Yeah. So it's it's again, it's it gets to a point where it's beyond my understanding and beyond beyond that high level description. I can't explain it. Well, one thing we do know uh, that the physicists who were working on this reported, and this is a thing that was highlighted really well in that documentary we watched called Particle Fever again. And yeah, you should check it out if you get a chance. It's yeah. Great. It's movie. available on iTunes, I believe. Uh, yeah. One of the things they talked about was how the mass of the Higgs boson would, depending on what that value was, would lend support to totally different views of cosmology, of what the universe fundamentally looks like. Right. So if you measure the mass of the Higgs boson and it's one number, that looks like really good evidence that fits with a theory called supersymmetry. Yeah. Which is a theory, a theory or a hypothesis, you might want to call it. It's um, a very interesting idea about how uh, space and matter are fundamentally formed. Mm-hmm. Another idea would be the multiverse, the idea that our local universe, all the things we can see going back to the Big Bang, are not all there is, but they're just one of many universes in a greater multiverse. Right. How could we ever have evidence for that? Well, if the value of the Higgs boson were a certain number, that would also seem to indicate to theoretical physicists that the idea of the multiverse is maybe more well-evidenced. Right. And this would be incredible. It would also kind of be sad because... As far as we know, there's no way we could ever observe any other universe other than our own. And keep in mind that those other universes would have very different laws of physics than ours do. Yeah, that's like, part of the theory, right? Yeah, is- yeah. That that if you know, it's not like it's not necessarily the parallel universe theory where we could do a a sliders like leap into another <laughs> another universe and be perfectly fine. Eh, who knows? Yeah, or you might just you know end up becoming pure thought, you know, or pure energy. Just like uh, the 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 guys in MST3K in that last episode did in uh, on Comedy Central before yeah. they coalesced back into people and robots <laughs> and Sci-Fi Channel. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so, well, we should take a brief uh, diversion to talk about how the media interacted with the Higgs boson. Well, first of all, have you heard about the God particle? Yeah, this is what they called it. I don't know where this name got started. I could probably find out if I wanted to look it up, but I don't. Yeah. I don't want to look it up. The, the name was. It's a frustrating nickname 
because it made for some awesomely stupid media coverage and, and reaction among the general public. People called it the God particle, but this particle has nothing to do with theology or with religion. Right. It, it, I saw people were reacting. I actually saw a thing just a few minutes ago. It was a collection of Twitter reactions people had because when the Higgs boson was announced. Simply because of that nomenclature. Yeah. Like the fact that someone was, called it a God particle yeah. and then people began to assume that that meant it either was a particle that would prove or somehow disprove the existence of God. Yeah, of course. This particle doesn't do anything close to either of those yeah, things. Yeah, it has nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but people, but, I don't know. I guess that's what they were interested in talking about. Well, so let's also be yeah, fair. Okay, uh, people will read the headline and no further. Sometimes <laughs> I am also guilty of this. By the way, I I oh, am yeah. not saying that. I'm not saying people as in those people over there never bothered to read the full article. But this is one case when you didn't do it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. In this case, I did read the full article. And I wrote one as well. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I didn't, you know, there are times where I'm, I'm just as guilty of that. So I don't mean to say that, you know, somehow I'm better than those people. I am those people, just not in this one case. Okay. So the discovery of the Higgs boson, we discovered it. We looked at its, its mass and we were like, here it is. Did it settle all these questions about the multiverse, about the, uh, about the, the supersymmetry, all these other questions? No, not really. But it did still give us a really interesting piece of the puzzle that'll give us something new to work with going forward in new theoretical physics, because right. now we know a few things. Number one, we have a better idea that the standard model of physics is on track, like right. it's it it hasn't been disproved. So we so um, it's not like we suddenly have to completely refocus our efforts in some new direction. What we need to do is kind of refine what we're looking yeah. for and how we're looking for it. So we've sort of seen like a mile marker along the race. It's like okay, we're sort of we're sort of going in the right direction. Good to know that. We've also got a value that we can work with plugging into new theoretical physics and moving forward. But I have the question, what's next? Is there anything left for the Large Hadron Collider to discover? Or now that we've got the Higgs boson, is that it? Oh, there's so much. Yeah. There's so much. Yeah, so the Higgs boson is easily the thing that most media outlets have focused on when it comes to what the LHC is doing. But that is just one part of all the different experiments going on. That's just one thing. It's a very important part. Yeah. But it's not the only part. So uh, we have questions about matter and antimatter, like I said at the top of the show. Why was it that at the Big Bang there was more matter than antimatter? Or why wasn't wh why didn't equal parts annihilate each other? What was it about that event that created the universe as we know it. Why did it happen that way? We need to answer those questions if we want to have a true understanding of how our universe works. Uh, also, you've heard about dark energy, dark matter, that stuff. Yeah, dark matter is a thing that helps us explain why the universe looks like it does. Yeah. Uh, so the universe displays certain gravitational properties that don't seem to make sense given how much matter we think is in the universe. Yeah, we look around, we see all this matter, we see it behaving in a way that's not completely consistent with how we understand the universe to work based upon the amount of matter we're able to see. So what that has caused people to theorize or hypothesize is that there's some stuff out there that we are incapable of observing yeah. that are that is in some way acting upon the rest of the stuff in the universe. And it's only because we are incapable of perceiving it that it's a mystery to us that it's totally there. And if we had a way of perceiving it, we could it would just fit neatly into our 
our our vision of how the universe works. Um, I mean, if it doesn't, then again, our fundamental understanding of how things work is off. So this dark energy and dark matter would make up the majority of energy and matter in the universe. Yeah. That the stuff that we can actually observe would be just a tiny little fraction of the overall picture, which is pretty phenomenal. But again, we can't observe it. So one of the things well, that we can, we can observe the effects of it. Yeah. And so there, there's, and there's some, you know, hypotheses about what it could ultimately actually be, uh, whether it's, uh, wimps or machos or, uh, other fun terms. But at any rate, a lot of the experiments at the LHC are dedicated to looking for evidence of dark energy and dark matter. Okay. What else? Cosmic rays. Bam. Cosmic rays. Yeah. So cosmic rays, again, something that happens in the universe all the time, right? You get these, these charged particles that are moving at high energy. The kind of cool thing about what the LHC does is it sort of creates something like a cosmic ray. Yeah, actually, I mean, really does create cosmic rays. It's just it's doing it in lab conditions. So yeah. it's under controlled conditions. So what is a cosmic ray then? Again, it's a, a highly charged uh, particle. It tends to be um, something that would, if we came into contact with it, would really mess us up big time. Yeah. But luckily, the Earth has They're a couple of layers. For you. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of layers of protection that we have here on Earth. Uh, the atmosphere and the magnetosphere in particular are helping us out a, a lot so we don't have to worry about it so much. Uh, and there's some people who are worried about cosmic rays at the LHC, but again, this is under controlled conditions. This is mm-hmm. the way you want to see it happen. Right. Um, there are some people who are worried that that might lead to a catastrophic event. But if you just point out the fact that cosmic rays are colliding with stuff all the time throughout the universe and our universe is still here, that's pretty good evidence that we're in safe territory, right? <laughs> that, that we're not going to rip a hole through the space-time continuum and get uh, pulled into uh, Doctor Who's universe. Okay, so I have a question. Yeah. We've talked about black holes. Number Before, one, yeah, sure. could, it, could the LHC teach us anything new about black holes? And number two, could it as I hope we've already suggested, it could not create a black hole that will kill everyone. Oh, I'm so glad you said we'll kill everyone because that's the part that I can say no. Right. It might create a black hole, but we're talking like a micro black hole that would last for a fraction of a second before collapsing in on itself. So when I say micro black hole, I'm talking about, you know, the black holes we think of in cosmology. Those are Our the re- former stars. Yeah, it's a result of a, of a collapsed star, right? Stars happen to be pretty big. I don't know if you noticed. In fact, some stars aren't big enough to become black holes. Yeah. Like our star doesn't have enough mass to become a black hole. So you have to be an enormous star to become one of these incredibly powerful black holes that start gulping everything up and nothing can escape it. And then you have the spaghettification and all that kind of fun stuff, right? Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but a subatomic particle is slightly smaller than your average star, let alone a star (laughs) large enough to make a black hole. And by slightly smaller, I mean... It's the other end of the scale. I mean, it's, you know, you talk about something that's so large you can't imagine exactly how big it is Mm -hmm. to something so small you can't imagine how small it is. So first of all, you're talking about a black hole that has, has less energy than a mosquito flapping its wings. Okay. So. No energy really at all. Second, it collapses within a split second. It does not have the energy needed to become any kind of macroscopic effect on the world around us. So that is not going to happen. However, being able to create these teeny tiny black holes means that on a very tiny scale, we might learn more about how they how they work. So we could learn more about black holes through these experiments, but 
there's no chance that this is going to create a black hole that's going to destroy the Earth. I mean, it's the same sort of thing as before when I talked about cosmic rays hitting the Earth all the time. The collisions that happen within the LHC are recreations of things that happen in nature. Okay, these things happen out in the universe a lot because yeah. the universe is, is so huge. It's not like these are, are super common events in our particular solar system. But if you take the entire universe, these things happen all the time and the universe is still there. So what's what we're seeing now is this controlled experiment within a laboratory where, again, the safety has already been established because we're here. Yeah. <laughs> if it weren't safe, we never would have made it. Because things would have destroyed themselves already before the Earth could have even formed. So that's the way to look at it, saying like, look, did you eat a sandwich today? Guess what? Here's the really super cool thing that we might discover. What, you're going to tell me about another discovery? Yeah, here's the coolest one. We don't know. We could we could discover something that we have yet to hypothesize about or something that completely and fundamentally changes uh, some aspect of how we um, understand the universe to work. Yeah. And in fact, these are the coolest types of discoveries. These are the disruptive discoveries, the things that force us to go way back and say, OK, we were getting a lot of stuff wrong or we had no idea that there was this whole other world of of rules and, and facts and interacting objects to discover. Right. And when you get into stuff like that, it brings up the obvious response to all these people uh, that are opposed to projects like this because they're like, what does it actually do? You know, yeah, how is one, this going to help us build a better mousetrap? Right. The ones who want some form of practical application. Well, first of all, uh, it, on the face of it, if you were to and this is in that movie that we were talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're, they're American politicians railing against creating this the super collider in the United States. And the response of the theoretical physicist, David Kaplan, is that, you know, I can't I can't tell you what this is for. It may not ever have any practical purpose. The reason for it is for us to understand the nature of the universe. It's to increase our understanding, which has its own value outside of just a practical application of making some technology that makes our lives better. Of course, if you do want to appease this this call for practical application, you can make a pretty good case because yeah. all of the technology we have today came out of non-technological scientific discovery, stuff that people were figuring out about how the world worked. I, I've heard this example used a lot. I can't remember uh, if he used it specifically in the film, but there have been a lot of scientists who bring this up. Radio waves. Yeah, he, Electri- he brings it up. Oh, yep. he does, yeah, okay. Electromagnetic radiation. I mean, that's totally true. That, that's a scientific discovery about the nature of physics and reality. But guess what? Now we've got GPS and satellites and microwave ovens, cell phones, radio stations, yeah. SETI. I mean, everything. Yeah, the point he makes, he said, think of radio waves. When radio waves were discovered, they weren't called radio waves. Because we didn't have radios yet. <laughs> we built radios in order oh, to yeah, harness yeah. this, right? Right. So yeah. that's the thing is that you cannot predict what sort of practical application may come out of this exploratory science. Just know that if stuff does happen, it's going to be pretty amazing. So yeah. you know, it's it, it's one of those that's really – it's a hard sell for people who are paying the, the bills, right? It's a hard right. sell to say, look – we may never have any sort of practical application for this technology, but we will understand more about how the universe works. And understanding more is a good thing. 
and it may lead to incredible practical applications. Who knows? The information that we get from these kind of experiments could lead to developments in things like interstellar space travel down the road in ways yeah, we knows? cannot anticipate. Maybe even time travel who where you can knows? go eat a baguette in 2000, whatever year it was, 2009, I don't know. I'm telling you, there were theories that it was actually a time travel yeah. paradox thing. But anyway. <laughs> okay, so I have a question. Yeah. Here we are. What's the next big step in particle physics? What's the next thing we're going to do? Obviously, I know there have been some upgrades planned for the LHC itself. Sure. And uh, its next round of experiments will be done at higher energy levels than the first round. Right. That, that'll so begin sometime in 2015. That alone is really cool. But what what's the next thing we could build after the LHC? Well, remember linear particle accelerators? Yeah, way back in the day. Yeah, back in the 1930s. I mentioned they might be in the future of particle accelerators, yeah, too. Yeah, so here, here's why. You might say, well, why would we go back to a technology after we had moved on to a different format? And the reason is that part of the problem with the cyclotron approach is that you have to expend a lot of energy to move those particles in an arc. Mm-hmm. You know, to move them in an arc, you have to... Uh, to exert energy on them, and you can cause subatomic particles to to change and not have reached their ideal relativistic masses. Yeah. That because you have to continuously exert this extra pressure in order to make them arc. If you can move them in a straight line, you wouldn't have to do that, right? You wouldn't. You just have a straight pathway, and you're just really accelerating them and making sure that they stay in the the in within the parameters of that pathway. Uh, you don't, but you don't have to bend them. You don't have to move them in an arc. And you can, uh, you can increase the whole energy level in that sense, or at least the relativistic mass in that sense. And so, uh, that's why we're looking at the possibility of some linear particle accelerators and colliders in the future. So just one big long tunnel. Well, really long. I mean, if we're talking <laughs> about the International Linear Collider, you're talking about a 31 kilometer long Particle accelerator. Yeah, that so that's a proposed collider that uh, it, it's not being built yet. It's just in the proposal stage. But yeah. a lot of the particle physics community are talking about it now. It's not even clear where it would be built, but I've read that Japan has expressed interest in hosting it. Yeah, finding um, finding thirty one kilometers that you can use to build not just the accelerator, but then all the scientific installations that you need in order to actually study the collisions. That's, I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of space. Yeah. So what would the International Linear Collider do? Uh, well, in this case, we're talking about another electron-positron collider. Okay. So uh, annihilating electrons and positrons at incredibly high energies to really see what happens once again uh, at these high energy particle collisions. And again, uh, it's it's more to say more of the same is a is a disservice, but it's really to get a, a slightly different like think of it as a different angle view yeah. on what is happening at the earliest moments of the universe. I hate that science and politics have to mix because it would be wonderful if we lived in a world where we could pursue scientific endeavors without having to worry about where the funding comes from. But that's not the world we live in, right? Right. And and because we need to make those considerations, they are important. I don't want to suggest that a a country that decides not to fund some sort of scientific endeavor is doing so for 
the wrong reasons. There may be very compelling reasons why that money needs to go somewhere else. Yeah. I don't wish to make this that kind of black and white, simplistic view of how the world works. The world is insanely complicated. So uh, I just wish that we lived in this world where we didn't have to worry about that. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in either case, I, I am also very sympathetic to the idea that, yeah, that we, we've got a lot of things that need funding. Yeah. There's a lot of competition for that. But at the same time, scientific research like this is funding the future. Sure. That sounds kind of like a cliche. I'm sorry, but it is. I mean, yeah. It's just it's, it's how you invest in what's happening to your children and in their world. Sure. It's just a really hard sell in the short term, right? You can, you can demonstrate how long-term gains are, are one of the things that go hand in hand with funding science. But for people who are, are, you know, kind of concerned about a short uh, election cycle that yeah. comes around every four to six years or so, or two to six years or so, however long, depending upon where you are and what position you hold, then saying, Oh, I want to vote for this incredibly expensive endeavor that's going to pay off possibly 25 years down the road is a really tough sell. It's a sell that needs to happen, but it's a tough one. So anyway, uh, this was fun to talk about particle accelerators and the fact that, that, you know, there's, this is stuff that's happening right now that's already incredibly exciting and who knows what could be right around the corner. Uh, or around the bend, I guess we should say, within the case of cyclotrons. So, because you can't have a corner with circles. Uh, but if you guys out there have any suggestions for future topics, something that you are really excited about, that you want to know more about, let us know. Drop us a line on Facebook, on Twitter, on Google+. We have the handle FWThinking. We look forward to hearing from you, and you'll hear from us really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started.
Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.